Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their zero to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days, no risk. We guarantee you being on time and on budget, or we'll finish a project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.io. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today, we have Nick Fogel of Wave and Chernkey. Wave recently crossed the 1.5 million AR revenue mark, adding 500,000 in annual revenues in just five months. That's some impressive growth. Nick also runs Chernkey. We are going to speak with Nick today about how he came up with the idea for Wave and Chernkey and any hurdles he has been able to clear starting up these two SaaS companies. How are you today, Nick? Doing great, Jordy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. I gave a quick intro, but why don't you just tell, tell us about who you are and maybe about your background? Sure. Yeah. Like a lot of SaaS founders, I, I didn't have plans or, or intentions to start in SaaS. There was you know, no college degree when I was finishing in 2008 or 2009 that would really equip you for all the undercurrents and changes to the market. But um, I was trained in economics uh, during the, the banking crisis. I realized maybe it's better to go to law school and went to law school, became an attorney, realized that I didn't really enjoy that, racked up a ton of debt. All along, I was still trying to really cater to my inner nerd. I'd always grown up playing video games and being really interested in computers and I had all these ideas for startups and kind of made this transition out of the traditional attorney world into startups and taught myself to code back in 2013. And that started a very long journey to getting to be a professional software engineer and trying a number of startups that didn't really work out. Um, we can get more into to some of that and what actually failed, but also turned into Wave, which is, has been a, a big success for me and, and my co-founders. Okay, great. So before we get into how you came up with the idea of Wave, I'd like to hear about that transition from being an attorney to being, uh, you know, software. What, like, why leave that world? You obviously didn't like being an attorney, but I mean, why? What made you made that jump? Because that's, you know, you mentioned before the show you had a ton of student debt. I mean, that's a big jump. What made you so unhappy with being an attorney? Yeah, it's a question I answered a lot back then, and. I talked to people and they would say, are you crazy? You're going to leave this profession that you spent all this time and money on and, and you're going to be a coder? Like, um, I think today that would make a lot more sense than it did eight or nine years ago. People now are starting to see the value of, of being able to write code. But back then there were a few things going on. I think over the course of law school, I had become really disinterested in the practice of law. I think a lot of people see law school as this this romanticized ideal where you've got these giant, you know, law and order style Corinthian columns and you're making these big proclamations in a, a court of law. And, you know, most of the law you actually practice day to day is, is really, really boring and dry. And 
Um, you know, another thing with law is I like the creative side. There's not a lot of room for creativity. Maybe if you're writing contracts or something, um, mm -hmm. but then you've got to wait a really long time to see if those pan out, if you wrote a good contract or, and with code, I, I realized, you know, you could create something and immediately you could put it out there in the world or you could see if it worked within a few seconds of making a change. So there was definitely some um, personal preferences that factored into that. The other big issue with law for me was the salary. I, I expected, you know, you go to three more years of school, you take out all this extra debt and you'd make a, you know, a, a nice salary bump. And I, th I thought, you know, the average attorney would make 70 or 80 or 90,000 finishing and have a kind of a nice growth path there. But in 2012, when I finished, the legal economy was in a horrible recession. I think salaries have rebounded a bit now, but the firm I'd clerked with for years was offering me like a, a salary of high 40,000 range, which that wasn't enough to pay my student loan debt. So for me, it was kind of like, well, I'm not really enjoying this profession. It's not paying me anywhere close to what I thought it would be. And it was this rec recognition that, well, I mean, if there's ever a time to try something new, I might as well go ahead and, and try to make something work right now because I'm, I'm sure not making enough money doing this thing that I really like. Yeah, that makes sense. So were you comparing um, salary? Because I mean, when I think about like a starting junior developer, I mean, I'm thinking 60 to 70 right out of the gate. Is that sort yeah. of the, the math you were doing? Well, hey, listen, I, I mean, I went to law school and I'm fairly specialized. I'm making 45. I mean, to me, that sounds awful. I would, wouldn't even consider it. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it was really bad. And and part of it is where I live in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, which it's not a giant city. It's it's mm. actually pretty small, but it's a highly mm. desirable place to live in this state because it's uh, on the coast. There are beaches. There's a lot to do here. So the market is highly saturated with people that want to move their law practice here. I could have probably made more if I'd gone out to a, rural, a, a more rural area, but things about law were just looking... Uh, less and less interesting to me at the time. And I think Indeed was the tool I used back then. They were around in, in 2012 and was just comparing different salaries. And it was pretty clear that if I could make a, make my way into software, I could make more money. I'll say maybe some of that is kind of revisionist history on my part. At the time, I didn't really even foresee myself going into an engineering field. My thought was, um, hey, I want to start this startup. And it was a legal startup I had in mind from some of the inefficiencies I'd seen working at the law firm. And uh, I wanted to build something, but I didn't know how to code. And nobody's going to trust this naive 22-year-old. Mm -hmm. um, if you're an engineer, you're not going to just go build somebody's idea for equity, especially if they don't have a track record. So I tried to reach out and, and people were like, oh, they were nice, said, maybe that's a good idea, but I can't do it. So I had to teach myself to code. And okay. that's, that's the portion where the story gets interesting. Okay. So let's hear about that. First of all, what stack did you pick and why? I picked JavaScript because, well, it seemed easiest at the time. Um, and I was trying to build more of a website first, too, because like I wanted to start generating interest in what I was building. And the interesting thing, too, at that time, um, so I, you know, done all this career changing and I ended up, the economy wasn't great. And we'd had to move out to a, a pretty rural area in South Carolina to actually, we did a housing wanted ad on Craigslist and mm -hmm. somebody um, had a spare little guest house and they let us rent it, but it was really far away. And the only job close by was uh, Kiwa Island has a golf resort and there was a job for a shuttle driver. So I was driving a shuttle and during the days I'd like put my laptop under my um, driver's seat. And when I wouldn't have a pickup, I'd pull it out, I'd tether my phone to the Wi-Fi, and I'd teach myself to code. And I was working on this marketing website and gradually moving into 
building the skill set. Okay, that's great. So are we talking like React or what were you learning? Like what JavaScript? So React really wasn't a thing back then. Maybe it existed or was in somebody at Facebook's mind, but this was just vanilla JavaScript, HTML and CSS um, and WordPress. So WordPress is PHP. I, I wasn't really having to learn WordPress at the time because it was, you can buy templates and you know, no code wasn't a thing. I, I don't know how much you know about the no code movement, but it's like a big deal now. People are realizing, hey, there are all these cool tools. I don't actually need to get in the weeds with code. That didn't really exist back then, but I found these um, these marketplaces online and you could actually buy some code people have already written. So I started to approach things like that and, and start stitching things together for this startup I was building. And it, it worked out pretty well. And by just having something to build in mind, that's what I recommend to anybody who's like wanting to make this jump and teach themselves the code is you have to have something in mind that you want to build, or you're never just going to go through Code Academy and get the little badges and learn anything. Right. So you you recommend then just like diving in and building something then? A hundred percent. It's like, I get this question all the time now that I've been more public with this story, but um, so many people realize, wow, like you can live anywhere. You can, you know, make all this money. If you learn how to code, I want to do that. And it, it's sort of... Um, confusing because there are all these boot camps, there are all these instructional tools online. The problem is they kind of gamify it with little badges. So you think that you're learning more than you actually are. When you take the training wheels off and then go try to apply it, you're, you don't know where to begin. The better way that I recommend is think about something you're really passionate about. What would you build if you could build anything? Now go build it and Google your way to building that. Mm-hmm. And you'll actually connect the pieces and you'll learn you'll learn exactly what you need to know to get to that next step. And that was very helpful for me to go from, you know, this having very little knowledge about how, you know, to write code to being good enough. I was eventually able to get an internship at a a big software company from this little tool I built for law. It was a failure as a startup, but um, the the silver lining was I built this skill set on the process of building this thing I had in mind. Okay. How long would you say that it took you to be by the time that you left, you started to, you know, sort of um, learn JavaScript to the time that you got this internship? How long was that time period? Um, It was October of 2012. And I got the internship at Blackboard at, um, I think it was May of 2013. So, I mean, we're talking like five or six months. It was right. Okay. It was really fast. And and part and, of that was I had a fire under me at that point because uh-huh. I, I was driving a, a shuttle making minimum wage and I had all this debt that was racking up and I just call it survival mode. Yeah. And um, I was so motivated. I just was constantly learning every weekend, every night. But it's possible if, if people are in that position. Yeah. I think anybody can do that. And just out of curiosity, do you remember what you got paid for the internship? Yeah, it was... Um, it was 15 an hour and then, then the overtime was pretty attractive too. So, I mean, okay. we're not talking a, a ton of money, but it's a heck of a lot better than minimum wage. And, and it was an opportunity to level up and prove myself. Mm-hmm. And that turned into a salary job, okay. which turned into a lot of opportunities. Right. Okay, great. So, okay. So take me from, from this time that you're working as a job. How long were you working as a sort of salary developer before the time that you started to, it sounds like you tried to start a few other startups along the way before you got to wave. Like, tell me about that journey. Yeah, it was long. (laughs) I guess looking back, it wasn't that long. It seemed long at the time, but 
uh, I did this internship and I was just, I had no credentials and no pedigree at all. And I was working with developers that had computer science degrees. So I just worked like crazy for that entire internship. It was like four or five months. Mm -hmm. Somebody was out on um, paternity leave. So I was kind of covering for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, by that time, I I was able to um, kind of prove myself and there was a full-time job opening. So I was able to move to that. It was kind of more of a junior type role. And I did that for about a year until uh, I think 2014. Okay. And then I got a really nice, a really nice opportunity to move to the enterprise side of the business and really prove myself in a more senior role. And I was actually even traveling internationally and doing these installations for people on site, which was a really cool experience. And it, it forced me to kind of, you know, level up my skill set. So basically, this whole phase, I was I feel like I was constantly underqualified to do what I was doing, but I was I was so worried and nervous about appearing that way every night and weekend. I was constantly continuing to learn and, and push myself. So that takes you to like uh, I guess 2015, and this was at the point where I was like, okay, like I'm ready to build something myself now that's legitimate, like a really good product. And I knew that I wasn't great at doing both development and sales. It's hard. It's really, really hard to be a solo founder uh, in SaaS. You know, it's funny. My wife actually was friends with the guy Barrett Hall, who would become my my co-founder for Wave. And the wives introduced us and said, "Hey, you guys have all these startup ideas. You guys need to work on it together." So we partnered up. Barrett would kind of handle a lot of the sales, marketing, and growth side, and I would handle a lot of the technical side on this first startup we created. It was called Utalk, and the idea was to be this Reddit of audio, and it was a really cool product. Basically, the way it would work was um, you'd have these, we would create little communities and you could post the audio message. So maybe like a Twitter for audio would be better where you've got these little channels where you can talk. It was really cool. We had radio stations using it. They would share live on air. The problem was we could not monetize it. Um, so we'd spent 18 months just grinding around the clock. I was still working two jobs. I, I didn't have a financial safety net or anything. And um, we couldn't get VC funding. We, we tried everything to make this work. And mm-hmm. the market was just saying, there's no appetite for this yet. People aren't willing to pay it. It's a cool product. And all the feedback we got was great, which can be a bad thing in a startup if you're trying to build a profitable business. I think yeah. that's what we realized is there's a big difference between building a business and building a product. And with that right. first tool that we built, um, Utah, it, it was, you know, it was essentially just a, a fun toy that people could use, but it didn't have a viable business okay. behind it. The idea was we'll sell ads eventually. I guess that's what people were still doing in, in 2015. Uh-huh. And we need to raise VC funding to get there. Um, so, well, I just want to dive into that a bit more. So the model then, what you're thinking was let's build something that's going to get, a, you know, like, you know, 20 million users and then we'll make money. Is that what the problem was? Or what was like when you were going yeah. into that business, what was your sort of business model? I mean, cause you're a smart guy. You went to law school. Like what were you thinking when you're saying, I'm about to spend 18 or let's say a year of my life. Were you thinking of financial outcomes at the end of that 12 months? Or were you not? Was this sort of the model was like a Facebook model where you let's just build this network, get a ton of people and then we'll figure it out or what went wrong? Yeah, I mean, we thought that was the model that was the most fresh in our minds at, at that point. Um, it's what we'd seen. You know, we watch the TV show Silicon Valley. We watch, we read TechCrunch. This whole idea of like being a you know bootstrapper and, and building that you know 
and selling first before you actually you know build this extravagant product that was totally foreign we hadn't heard that before our thought was we will build this giant platform we're mostly concerned about numbers we're not as worried about selling at first we just want mass volume mm-hmm. we'll get the attention of vcs we'll accumulate all this you know vc money we'll hire out we'll do like the you know long term exit plan which now i mean that sounds totally unattractive to us having done it the other way yeah. but at the time that was the only way we knew how to do it okay that makes sense uh is that product still going by the way um so we actually sold the assets of that business to somebody else who was going to use that to create a different product and i, I think it's doing pretty well um for a more niche use case yeah um we didn't sell it we sold it for i mean pretty much pennies on the dollar mm-hmm. of our time right and we actually sold the um, assets after we had found this other, we built an internal tool that became Wave. Mm-hmm. And we sold those assets after we discovered that and realized maybe there's something here with this little uh, internal tool that we've been using for marketing. Okay. So so what was the next project? for? Was it uh, Wave after that? Or what was after uh, yeah. uh, you talk? Yeah, that's right. And we actually had ran into a trademark issue. We, we did all the things wrong that you would do wrong. We didn't do a trademark search before we picked Utah. Utah was like, there's like a trademark for anything related to the, the letter U and then the word talk. So um, we had all kinds of problems, but eventually we, we changed the name to Wave and filed Delaware C Corp, another mistake. We just thought that was what everybody had to do to raise VC. So what happened was we actually realized we have this internal tool that's really promising. Let's you know, sell the assets, dissolve this C-Corp, but we want to keep our branding and everything. So we're going to be Wave LLC. We restructured the company, started with a, you know, a clean cap table, started everything new. And um, the internal tool we created, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, so in, in the last days of Utah, we were, I mean, it was clear that this wasn't working. We needed something big and, and we needed kind of a Hail Mary to get this thing more sticky and see if we could just try to um, make a splash and get a lot of numbers to get VC money. One night I was working late and I found a little tool on GitHub and modified it to turn audio into video. And I figured we could use this. We had all this audio just sitting on Amazon Web Services and I could just pull in all that audio, generate these cool videos and then post them to Twitter and Facebook uh, for our users, share that, uh, that was one realization we realized with Wave is that audio does not share well. So if we could turn it into video and make it attractive, maybe we could just kind of bootstrap a bigger audience. But you know what happened from that was it worked so well for getting attention. People were willing to pay for it, but they weren't our users. They weren't our, our Utah users. They were other people out there. They were podcasters who said, hey, I, I really want to be able to promote my podcast with this. I'd love to get a clip of my podcast, generate a waveform and share it. You're talking, Um, so you're talking about audibles then, right? You're talking about like, like I'm trying to visualize how how you, like, how do you turn audio into video? I'm trying to visualize that, but is it, is it that you're just putting some text in there and then those, those sort of uh, wavy lines or, or how are you doing that turning audio to video? uh, So technically we use a tool called FFmpeg and we use some other libraries to, they basically take the sound, um, just that the data, the sound is just data, right? And we plot that mm-hmm. 
on a curve and we can draw it and animate it. Um, and we ended up bringing in, a, we were lucky to find eventually a, a data visualization specialist who actually became a, a part owner of Wave. And we found him pretty early. So we were lucky to do that, to have somebody that was really skilled at creating those because I was, I'm more of the hacker, I'd say, if you're looking at, uh, at technical people that can mm -hmm. put all these different ideas together. And we brought in somebody who's really technical who can do it really, really well. Okay, great. Um, so is that what Wave is then? Is that what turned into Wave? Yeah, yeah, okay. that, that became Wave. I mean, these days, I think people are just used to seeing the video that's kind of animated. It's technically called an audiogram, but it's the video with an animated waveform and some subtitles and things like that for promoting podcasts. You see them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, we use, I use them, in fact. We do use them. So I don't even know what the program is because my editing team does it. But I'm, now that you're talking about it, I'm very familiar with it. We should hook you up with a coupon code then. Yeah, so it's something that people now are just conditioned to. It's been around for a few years. We were the first to commercialize it. And there have been a, a few um, competitors that popped up in the months following. But we had a good six months there where there was, you know, there was no competitors or anything. And we didn't even really think it would be a viable business. It seemed like such a niche thing at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, this is back in October, maybe September of 2016. Okay. We're trying this as an internal tool. Mm -hmm. And we're at a startup event and somebody's talking to Baird about, you know, this new thing we're doing. And I think they suggested, hey, you know, have you tried charging for that? And right away, we started testing that. And we already had uh, Stripe hooked up to our website and we started offering it for $5 mm -hmm. a month. Mm -hmm. And people bought it. I think... That first month, we might have made three or four sales. And the following month, we might have had 10 customers. So before long, we're noticing, hey, like this is doing $100 a month. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really put a lot of time into it. Let's test it and, and see what we can do. Um, can I just quickly clarify, when you say as an internal tool, is this, what were you selling at the time? Is this for when you were still Utah and you were using it as an internal tool? Mm -hmm. What company are you running when you're doing this as an internal tool? Yeah, this is the Reddit for audio business kind of thing. So this is Utalk. Yeah, we were calling ourselves Wave at that point because of the trademark issues. Okay. But it was an internal tool to promote this Reddit of audio. Okay. And we weren't selling it at all. We just, we didn't think anybody would buy it. We thought it was like the perfect tool to, to share the use case we had, um, which was sharing audio and making it easier to see on social media. And that turned out to be a really, really big problem. And uh, the nice tailwind we had at the time podcasting has been growing for a while, but it was about to hit this shift where it just goes parabolic. Right. And since then, we've really, really benefited from that nice tailwind. That makes sense. How are you paying yourself during this time? Because you're still coding. You still had your job? Oh, man, this was hard, um, especially when we scrapped the Reddit for audio business, mm -hmm. like the, the Utalk idea. I had been working full time and probably doing 30 or 40 a week on the startup as well. It was hard on my, my marriage at the time. It was hard on my health, hard on everything. But we were still paycheck to paycheck. And I had 200 and something thousand in debt that was just, it was negative amortizing. So that was growing. And um, it was a very stressful period of my life before we found this tool. And around that same time, I'd found a consulting gig that was, it was definitely the way to go, to, to go the freelance route. And I partnered up with some other senior developers in my area. And I was able to bring in a really large income from that and have some more flexibility, mm -hmm. but it was still stressful to, to have to balance 
both of these things. Okay, so you had moved from being a full-time developer to the consultant. You were making more money, but you're still doing the startup. You're shifting away from Utah towards Wave. You now changed the name to Wave. You're making a couple hundred bucks a month in MRR. Is that right? And, and what time period were like yeah. 2017? Exactly. Yeah, we're looking at December of 2016. We're doing a few hundred in, in uh, MRR. Okay, great. So you realized you had something. You're doing the coding. What was the pivot? And talk me through like that, you know, few hundred MRR getting to like sort of um, you know, maybe to the point, like how much did you feel like you needed to get to this so that you could go full time? Oh man. Well, I'll start at the end, uh, and work my way back. I think okay. it, it's a better story that way, but, uh, I didn't go full time until last summer. So it took about three years. Okay. Um, now I'll tell you why. So December, 2017, we're making a few hundred bucks a month. Baird and I, our goal was to pay our mortgages. We never thought this was a viable business. Okay. We, we really didn't. Yeah. Um, we were like, okay, we're going to have to do consulting, but maybe we'll, this little side hustle will pay our mortgages and we'll just keep growing it. Um, Sorry, what was he? What was Baird doing at this time? So Baird was doing sales. He, he ended up starting to do some consulting too on the side. because In he, your consulting company, in the same sort of cult? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He had a, another little um, gig or two from some of our earlier podcast customers who needed some help. Okay. Baird's background is in sales and marketing. So um, our agency at the time was like needing some sales and marketing help. So it worked out nicely that I joined this one and then he was able to kind of ramp up and make a little extra income. Because uh, it's hard. Baird went a lot longer than I did without um, without an income. And I think by you know December of 2017, we were both just pretty tired and, and needed to bring in some money. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we both started consulting. I was still doing probably 40 hours a week as a you know, full stack developer consulting and then probably 20 or 30 with, uh, with wave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an interesting period there where in 2017, um, we really started to see the growth pick up. And if you talk to engineers, engineers are sometimes I, I'd say we're a, a lazy bunch because we like to automate tasks and we don't want to automate it though, until it actually inconveniences us. Mm-hmm. And uh, Q1 of 2017, we were still seeing growth with wave. Um, it'd grown from a few hundred to, I think we were doing about seven or 800 in April and Baird was handling a, a lot of the support or mostly all of the support and onboarding of new customers. Here's the thing though. We didn't have a fancy app at that time. When we launched, we just had an IP address and we would manually upload the design. So all the customers were right there in a dropdown. You could see all the other customers. If you wanted to use another customer's design, you could have done that. And I was just like, I spent all this time on this last one. I'm not going to go overboard on building things okay. that people aren't going to use. Yeah. Um, so in Q1, I was finally like, all right, we, we've got like, I don't know, 40 or 50 customers. Mm-hmm. So I need to build this thing properly. So I, I sunk a bunch of time and things were moving along, but Baird was still having to do these manual setups. Anytime somebody needed a new design, they would send him a, a landscape, a portrait mode, mm-hmm. and uh, like a square mm-hmm. design. And then we would upload them. And I, I taught Baird how to, you know, upload the code and kind of do a little deploy. So Baird went to Europe for a week or two mm-hmm. and I was back home and I was trying to take over that side of the business for him. And I said, man, this is awful. Like, I, you know, you can't do anything. It's such a time consuming, mm-hmm. uh, monotonous task. So at that point, I was like, we really need uh, to have this thing self-serve. In uh, May and June, we built this custom editor. And this was the inflection point for Wave was um, when we made it totally self-serve and, and removed ourselves more from the onboarding part, 
we really turned a corner there and uh, people were able to onboard faster. And the sticky thing about Wave is the more people that use it, the more it gets shared and then the more people see it on social. And that drives this nice feedback loop of traffic back to the business. So over that summer of 17, we started to see really good growth. We rewrote the application in the fall of 2017. And at that point, we were, we were doing pretty well. We'd crossed uh, fall of 2017. We were doing three or 4,000 okay. in MRR. And what are you charging at that time? Because you said you started at five. What, I mean, that's a lot of accounts to get up to that. You had bumped up the price or were you finding there were some power users that were willing to pay, you know, like 50 bucks a month or tell me about, talk to me about your pricing. Um, when you start a business, it's hard sometimes to justify the price of it. And the best thing to do, we, we ended up realizing is test, test different prices and see people's willingness to pay. Mm-hmm. We waited way too long to increase prices. Uh, after the five dollar uh, like starter plan, I think uh, in like January, or February, twenty seventeen, we moved it up to seven dollars. But that still wasn't very much. Yeah, that's tough. So, yeah, it, it was taking so many more customers yeah. to get us, you know, to hit these MRR multiples. So we moved it up to seven. But then we had another problem where some people wanted to create these really long videos, and that's costly. That's really expensive if you're generating a lot of video. Mm-hmm. So toward the end of 17, we realized we need multiple plans. And that's when we got a little more uh, intelligent with our pricing. We created three plans, one for the hobbyist that wasn't going to create, you know, maybe one or two videos a month. And then one for um, the user that was more frequent. And then one for like the agency type user, which was priced a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up changing our pricing a few more times because it ended up that we were undercharging for a while, but that's probably the, one of the biggest levers you've got at your startup is to increase your, your price point. That makes sense. What's your pricing now? Right now we have a $10 base plan. We've got an $18 middle plan mm-hmm. and we've got a power user plan. That's $32 okay. a month. So totally reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And we also, um, we realized there was this part of the market that we were missing these big, um, we had government agencies. We had, um, you know, we had like, I don't want to, um, you know, name customer names. So with some some really big players mm-hmm. who had higher needs, yeah. so we created a sixty dollar a month pro plan, and that's kind of the top. That's the top, top tier that we okay. introduced last year. Okay, that's interesting. So tell me about the growth. Where were you finding? I mean, because that sounds like some nice organic growth. Tell me about how you found that. Did you stumble into it? And what's been working for you that that organic growth that it seems like you found. Um, early on, I'll say that a lot of it was direct outreach Baird. I created this, um, I scraped all the RSS feeds and a lot of RSS feeds have an email address mm-hmm. and Baird was able to reach out directly to these, um, customers and send them a preview of, of what a, a great audiogram looked like. You're all exclusively in the podcast. So you're, you're yeah, going into podcast. the, when you say RSS feeds, you're scraping like Libsyn RSS feeds or what, what were you doing? Uh, iTunes has an open API. Okay. So I create a little tool and, and Baird could go and he could look in and he could pull the emails and he's, you know, a great sales guy. He'll go, he'll direct outreach to people and say, Hey, like, you know, you could be using this to promote in social media and, and send a nice preview of, uh, of, of a way video that somebody was using. And, uh, that worked pretty well at first. And then as we needed to scale more, uh, it really began to be more of an organic content play. Okay. People, people were searching for this. Like, how do I, to put my podcast on Instagram. I think Baird wrote an article on that that 
uh, it's one of our best performing uh, articles of all time because there was this period where everybody wanted to say, you know, how do I get my podcast on Instagram? Yeah. So there was a lot of this organic content. And uh, to this day, we've been very, very consistent. Every week we write a blog that's really geared toward podcasters, mm -hmm. uh, particularly new podcasters who are just starting out and who are trying to figure out what tools do we need to get started. And that has been a really good distribution channel, just having such a long, um, long head start on a lot of these uh, keywords for podcasters. Okay, great. So, yeah, because I was thinking, I'm thinking one-to-one uh, -one sales on a $5 product is not going to last very long. That's like a couple of not months. Not going to work, yeah. Yeah, and you're going to burn out. So do you guys write your own articles or tell me about your content marketing strategy? So uh, the first few years, it was, I mean, it was just Baird and I and, and Baird is hammering out all of this content. Eventually, we're, as we were growing and able to expand more, we were able to bring on a, a content writer and an agency that helps us with a lot of the marketing. Mm -hmm. So that really helped to alleviate some of the burden and help us to stay in a consistent rhythm over the years. So I think for the past 18 months or two years, we've had uh, some external help with the content strategy. Okay. And like, tell me about your content marketing strategy. What do you go for? Do you have a strategy? You obviously have a strategy, but what was this sort of, how did it formulate and um, like, how did it get going? Because it sounds like um, really successful content marketing. So I'd like to know how you got into it. A lot of that was just early on fielding questions and seeing that, that people had, you know, these different needs that we were realizing. I think that's one thing that in hindsight we did really well was talking to customers and listening. Um, we've been really focused on support. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's different from a lot of businesses where we did a lot, we did these things that don't scale. I mean, you hear that, do the things that don't scale early. Mm -hmm. um, and we never stopped offering full-time support. So we have somebody on staff who's there and he's been there for two years now as well that um, we use intercom and he's always there. And his response time is like five minutes. So this whole customer support thing was really important for helping with some of our content strategy. Another thing that Baird would do was just, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a podcaster and Google search terms and do some research that way to figure out like, what are our target customers actually typing? We did a lot of customer interviews early on. Um, really, a, a lot of the content strategy was around understanding our customers and what are they trying to do to be successful mm -hmm. and to help their podcast stand out in a field that's growing so fast and the your attention is so divided between all the, the different podcasting options you've got these days okay and do you have any guidelines like on article writing i mean do you were you trying to stick to like okay 1500 words four times a month or were they just sort of random some were just like depends some might be like 5000 words and some might be 900 or you know, guidelines there that maybe our listeners yeah, it, could follow? It varies. Um, we uh, we actually stuck pretty closely to, so if you use WordPress, there's a tool called Yoast. Yeah. It's, a, it's an SEO tool. Sure. You might be familiar of with it. Of course we use it. It's excellent for getting started. So uh, if some of the listeners out there are not SEO experts or you're just wanting to get started and write, I would say, you know, the hardest thing about building content is just getting started and, and writing something. Mm -hmm. um, if you sit around and you know analyze keywords forever, you're probably not going to get a good start. But really putting yourself in the position of the customer, like what are the the things that are peripheral to the business mm -hmm. um, and things that could you know draw people in, and then using a tool like Yoast to make sure that you're hitting all the high points with SEO. You know Google's constantly changing, and it's nice to rely on a tool like that that is going to be updated consistently to kind of help you with some of the the best advice. 
Okay, that's good. So you would just make sure that you got, you were following in Yoast that you get, you know, I think it has like a green light or, you know, it turns green. Yep, and as soon it. as it's, it's green, you know, it's okay, this is good enough to post out. And so was it mostly all, um, or, or like organic search then, or are you doing any paid stuff or what other channels have you found that have worked for you? Do you have any paid traffic uh, strategies yeah. now? Initially it was just organic. A lot of it would be somebody would see it. And one cool little trick we used was uh, we added a, a watermark for free users. We get a lot of free users. Um, uh -huh. I'd say 90% of our users are free. And we would have like a little wave watermark that showed up temporarily in the first few seconds of the clip. Uh -huh. And that was great. So when free users would share this on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, that would drive traffic back to wave. Okay. So, so that was great. Uh, we did start using paid ads this year. That was the, it was the first year we started using it. I guess we'd done some tests before, yeah, but we'd never really gone all in. And in January, we really kind of ramped up our ad spending. And um, I think Facebook has probably been one of the more profitable distribution channels for us. Google AdWords has been okay. Yeah. But uh, I, I'd say, Facebook and um, some of the retargeting campaigns have been have been pretty good. Okay, so walk me through like um, how long you were doing just organic, and at what point, like what MRR did you get up to with just organic? Um, about fifty thousand. Fifty thousand MRR just on organic, mm -hmm. um, and when did you hit fifty thousand MRR? About, um, I can pull it up right now, but I I, I want to say about 14, 15 months ago. Um, okay, so me, relatively recently. So it's kind of a... Yeah, we've been growing fast. We've grown about 100% year over year. That's great. I, I'll say, I can tell you right now. Yeah, so it would have been um, summer of, uh, of 2019. Okay. Across 50,000. Okay, it sounds to me like it was the combo of the sort of viral nature of the product because... You're posting, you're naturally, your users are going out and posting this on social media. So as you had pointed out earlier in the show, oh, it's this feedback loop. I didn't actually pick up on how important that actually was because as you say, they're going out to Facebook and other people just say, oh, this is cool. I could use this. And that's, that's where they were coming from. That's really interesting point. If anyone is listening right now is to maybe thinking about incorporating some type of viral aspect of, of your product. I'd love to be able to do that to my own product. So I'm going to start thinking about that myself. But would you say that that's still like a huge contributing factor to the 100% year over year growth is just that combo between um, your users posting to social media and then gaining new traction from that? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's huge. And you know, it helps that we have a growing TAM, a TAM that's uh, our addressable market is massive. It's continuing to grow. It's growing internationally. So it, it's been a, a really podcast it, market, a really important part of the product. Yeah. yeah, the podcast market has. And, you know, I'll say not all of our customers are podcasters, but it is about 90%. We get a lot of musicians who love to use Wave to okay. help animate uh, some, of their, some of their music. And I think that's a great use case as well. Okay. So how has the competition sort of affected you mentioned some competitors. It sounds like you were an early front runner, some impressive growth going on. Has the competition slowed that growth down at all? Or is it just such a blue ocean market that it's not really affected? We've been fortunate. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a large market. We haven't felt it. I mean, if competitors didn't exist, we would be doing 
maybe twice as well as, as we are now, mm-hmm. but we haven't really felt it. We haven't felt the um, a crunch or anything from people going to competitors. I will say one big difference is that um, our largest competitor is VentureBacked. Um, and Baird and I have bootstrapped this thing from day one, and we've continued to work on it that way. I think we both put $1,000 in the business to oh, like pay that yeah. first AWS that's bill. Great. But um, yeah, that, that was about it. And then it's just uh, effort of you know love and sweat from there. Okay. Tell me about your student debt. Um, how, how's your student debt doing now? It's gone. It's um, gone. All right. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, exciting. That, yeah. I mean, it was, it was 250,000 um, in 2016. So around this time that we're creating the internal tool of wave, you, you know, yeah. I gotta, I've got to stop here and say, um, you know, you listen to a lot of podcasts and I was somebody that have a voracious appetite for startup podcasts. Uh-huh. And um, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, I was listening to, to all the, the podcasts. And um, one thing that people don't talk about enough, it's luck. Um, there is an element to a successful business that's luck. And I think we got pretty lucky with um, what we found with Wave. Um, but this is the other part of it that is worth mentioning. The longer you stick with something and the more effort, the, it's kind of you know the, the basketball analogy, the more shots you take, eventually you're going to have one and your, your luck will kind of work out. So there's definitely a skill element in once you've done it you know, once before. But I, I think that's my biggest advice is like, you know, very rarely do you meet somebody who, whose first product was a home run. In hindsight, it's easy to look back and be like, oh yeah, we were geniuses. We had this feedback loop and, and all this stuff, but we were just making it up as we went and we were doing the best that we knew how to do. Um, as far as like, you know, coming back to the student loan side of things, my plan always was ho- hopefully I can make a startup that, you know, gets acquired or something to, you know, pay this giant thing down. Otherwise I have no idea how I'm going to get out of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when Wave was doing well and, and Baird and I, since, you know, we didn't have employees or anything, we were just doing um, profit distributions and we brought on another partner, uh, equity partner, and the three of us were, you know, handling everything and working on it part time. And as the company grew, I mean, we've had a profit margin of around 75% most of the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the profits were going straight to us. And I was also still working a, a full-time job at a, a large cryptocurrency or, or Bitcoin security company that I'd helped co-found in 2017. So I had two jobs and that was really helping to pay down the student loans. It's just chunking as much money as I could at these crazy, ridiculous high interest loans. Okay. I want to make sure that we touch upon Churnkey um, before the end of the show. Can you just sort of tell me about, because you mentioned that dialing in your churn was a huge thing. Can you just like go into how you came up with the idea of Churnkey and how that's been, uh, you know, starting? Is Baird involved with that as well? Yeah, it's the exact same partners. Um, We brought another friend who had, worked with me at the uh, Bitcoin security company, a really talented designer. So it's Baird, Rob Moore, myself, and Scott Herf on Churnkey. Okay. So you're the CTO. You've got the designer who's what? Is he like this uh, uh, stakeholder, product owner type? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think this one is a little different where we're, we're not really having like the C-Corp or the uh, C-suite names. Uh-huh. We're just all equal co-founders, but yeah, we do have these responsibilities and I kind of do the finance, the legal, some security infrastructure, some of the engineering. Rob does a lot of the engineering and um, Scott does the product and design and Baird does marketing and sales. And it's kind of the perfect combo that we've kind of realized everybody's strengths from working together for so long. Yeah. It sounds like a powerful combination of skills there with the design, the tech side and the sales and marketing. 
It really is. And, and so just to explain kind of what it does and, and how we got here. So in, initially we had really high churn with Wave. We didn't really understand why, but after talking to enough customers, we realized that there's a problem that some podcasters have where you know they'll start a podcast, it sounds really great, and then they'll get exhausted and they'll want to take a break. And when you have a monthly subscribed product, that can be painful if you're not releasing an episode and you're not using the product. Mm -hmm. So we started offering a, in the offboarding flow, a pause plan, and that worked really well. And customers, a lot of times in the feedback would be like, hey, I, you know, I want to come back in a few months. So we introduced pause, um, that worked well. And, and then we how much started, How much was the pause? Uh, so pause is free. So, oh, okay. so the idea so was, of pausing okay. is just that- Just to keep them as a it, customer. Okay, okay, that's cool. Yeah, because a lot of times you have this, you know, this digital breakup, if you will, where you've got somebody who is, they just don't want to pay, but they like the product and they want to come back eventually. So the pause has been a helpful feature for that. Annual plans were another big one mm -hmm. um, so that you could reduce trend that way. So, you know, what we realized is there's this whole sequence that isn't really addressed in software. And it's, you do all this work to get somebody onboarded mm -hmm. and up to speed with drip campaigns on how to use the product. But what about when somebody leaves? Mm -hmm. And with Wave early on, we realized like, if we don't do something about churn, we're going to hit a ceiling at like 30,000. Mm -hmm. We broke through that. And then we were like, okay, well, you know, the current ceiling, if our churn stays the same, is like 90,000. Mm -hmm. And um, we kept improving our offboarding sequence to help offset that. And there was some growth there too that helped us break through those barriers. But we realized that, you know, we're going to have a cap if we don't do something about churn. So this whole time we're like, we got to make a product for this. We got to, you know, make a product that other companies can use because it's really time consuming if you're a, a small SaaS team to optimize and do all the data crunching and things to help, you know, with your churn. So what we've decided to do with Turnkey is productize that. The flow that worked really well for Wave and we've used it on some of the other businesses and we're going through a private beta now and it, it's working phenomenally well where, you know, you can actually see Customers are going through the offboarding sequence, so they're clicking cancel. Right now, people are are their budgets are tight with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing we offer is a discount if somebody, you know, we have a survey if they select that, um, you know, they're leaving because it's too expensive. Then we're going to offer them a discount for a few months to help them because it's you know we want to be sensitive to that, but it also helps to preserve that relationship until you know the economy gets back to normal. Mm -hmm. If somebody has technical issues and that, that's what they click in the offboarding survey, we'll pop up our intercom chat and our support person is phenomenal. And immediately he knows that this customer is in danger of leaving. He can address their issue right there. Yeah. And so we've built this tool that other companies can use for a, a monthly charge. Uh, right now we're doing a special where it's kind of a lifetime bill of, of 50 bucks a month. And eventually the, the pricing will be a, a good bit higher than that. But when you look at building versus buying something, a lot of times it's easier to buy something because you've got a company that's specialized in that one task. Mm -hmm. And if you know if you had your SaaS company and you're wanting to tackle churn mm -hmm. and you want to use your engineering team, you're going to spend probably twenty, thirty thousand dollars of their engineering time. And then a lot of like recurring time to keep that thing updated. And what we're doing is we're we're doing all the engineering work for you and we've got all these beautiful reports and visualizations to really help you understand why are customers leaving? How can we retain them? And then the tool itself will help you retain. For Wave, the tool retains about 30% of customers who click cancel. Uh, really? They end up That's great. Sticking around. That's really great. Um, obviously, SaaS customers, how's the growth of that product been? Uh, of uh, Turnkey? Yeah. 
Yeah, we so we just launched in um, in September. We kind of made it public, okay. and we've got a long waiting list of like I think it's maybe close to a hundred people now. Okay, and we're doing a small private beta, so we're looking at customers that will probably be a good fit for this first trial period. Okay, right now we're only supporting Stripe. That's the only payment gateway we're supporting, just because we want to be very precise and make sure we're optimizing for for that. And it's you know by far the most popular. Okay. And eventually we'll move into to support other gateways as well. Okay, great. Um, so Nick, we're coming up to the top of the hour. I want to make sure I'm, I'm respectful of your time, but I want to thank you so much. I personally have learned a lot about growing you know sort of small priced um, SaaS products. Uh, it sounds like Wave is doing great and. I'm going to look it up because obviously I'm a podcaster, so I want to make sure I'm getting my audibles done right. Yeah. Um, what I'll can, send you a coupon code. Okay. Yeah. You, can you leave our listeners a coupon code or is that a bit too much to ask? I don't have one ready, but what, could you throw it in the show notes? Sure. I'll, I'll get one ready. Yeah. Let's uh, do that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a good one for you. Okay, yeah, cool. Great. great. How can our listeners find out more about you? And if they want to reach out to you, how can they do that? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at, at Nick Fogel. Feel free to DM me. I'm happy to answer questions on student loans, creating a startup, you know, really anything. So definitely feel free to reach out. My DMs are open. You can also just reach out if you're interested in Turnkey, Nick at Turnkey.co. Okay. Um, if if your company's facing churn or if you're you know just starting out and you're you know wanting to go ahead and lock in a lifetime pricing deal, definitely reach out. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Nick. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software Big Break could be right around the corner. <laughs>